This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have another guest, Brian Lynn. Hi, Brian. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. What is your background in science? How did you get into science? What are your interests in science? Sure. Uh, so my background in science, well, I studied the evolution of cooperation, and I got into it starting with studying math. So I was a math undergrad. Um, but once I got to some of the upper level courses, I found I really enjoyed the intersection of math and biology. And in particular, I really liked game theory and evolutionary applications of math. And so then I sort of transitioned from pure math to math plus science. Was there something in particular that got you interested in the biological applications of math? Yeah, I think there was a part of me that always wondered a little bit like why do I care about this math? And so when I'm proving that one infinity is larger than another, it was hard to see what are the applications of this? And like, maybe it's a little interesting, but didn't seem tangible. And so when we got to math bio, it felt more like I could see the way these equations worked in the world in front of me. So I started at a community college in Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis Community and Technical College. And then I transferred to the University of Massachusetts, Boston campus. So in your math program, did they require you to take an applications of math course as a higher level course? I was doing a bachelor's of science rather than like a bachelor of arts. And so there was a certain number of science classes that were required. And so I tried to do the ones that were both qualified as a math elective and also a science elective. And so that's how I ended up taking things like uh, game theory and evolution or intro to like math bio. For people who don't know, could you describe what game theory and evolution really is? Like how game theory is relevant to evolution? Yeah, absolutely. So I think at its core, game theory is really a math model of strategy and decision making. And so that applies well to behavior. Uh, so you see a lot of its applications in economics for that reason. But we apply it to evolutionary biology in a sense that you know, we tend to think of evolution being driven by physical traits. So you have Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest and his finches, if you have the right beak. But we can also think of behavior as being a driver, like a behavioral traits as driving evolution. And so I particularly look at cooperation as a, as a trait um, and see how it evolves. We do this through thinking about cooperation as hard to describe evolutionarily. It requires a cost to the individual to cooperate. And so if survival of the fittest is the true driver, we would expect cooperation not to exist. But we see it in all forms of life from humans to bats to bacteria. And so the interest is really in why does it exist and like how does it exist when it theoretically shouldn't. I would imagine for a lot of people, the concept of bacteria cooperating with each other is unintuitive because we tend to think of bacteria as something that doesn't experience intentionality at all. Can you describe what cooperation among bacteria would look like? Yeah, definitely. It is a sort of you know anthropomorphic concept to apply to such as well not a simple organism but a simpler one so if we think about like on the human scale something like sustainable fishing we call that a public goods game uh, and theoretically every fisherman would be best off if they fished as many fish out of the ocean as possible right they would make more money that way but if every fisherman does that we run out of fish so it's 
there's this tension between the individual self-interest and the collective good. Uh, bacteria do communicate. It's you know not through words, but through signals um, and having signal receivers. And when enough of them get together and enough of this signal is present, they will do something called quorum sensing. Yeah, and so they'll quorum sense and then start producing a public good. So like the bacteria I work with, uh, Pseudomus aeruginosa, produces an enzyme that helps for metabolic digestion. So it's sort of like is this knife that'll cleave the food into smaller bite-sized pieces. And so, but we have some strains that won't produce the enzyme. So we think of those as our non-cooperative ones. Um, because they get to benefit from the enzyme that's produced by others, but they're not taking on the cost of production. So basically free riders. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we have our cooperating bacteria and our cheating bacteria, but it's all just comes down to this enzyme production. Could you just describe quorum sensing? Yeah, definitely. So uh, in the genome, we have basically two genes that, well, there's several, but there's this. Um, there's one gene that would like sort of produce this signal, and another one that will receive it. When the bacteria is producing the signal, there's these signal molecules that end up in. If you think of like in the test tube or whatever environment they're in, um, once enough of those signals are present that they can start receiving them. So um, if there's only a few, the odds of the cell sort of receiving that signal is going to be smaller. But once it's concentrated enough, um, they're more likely to receive the signal from another gene. Then they'll start this process of quorum sensing, which basically just turns on a bunch of other genes. Huh. It's basically how you go from a bacteria sort of just living solo on its own to, say, forming a biofilm or sort of a colonial structure. Yes, exactly. My uh, master's degree did a lot with microbial ecology, so this is slightly in my wheelhouse. I guess I have maybe two questions that you can pursue. One is, how did you end up specifically doing what you're doing now? And or, what does it actually look like to research game theory and evolution regarding cooperation? Like, what does your lab time look like? What is the research setup like? What is the process behind that? Sure. Yeah. So for the first question, how I sort of ended up here, I feel like a bunch of chance and luck, maybe. My current advisor, I had stumbled upon a paper of his while doing my undergrad thesis. And when I was looking at grad schools, I applied here and sort of mentioned him as being someone I wanted to work with and that happened to work out. He had a project for me um, and my department, you know, funds students through TA, so he didn't need to have a, a grant in order to take me on. So I, I feel like that was a little bit of reading papers and a lot of bit of timing and luck. But my day-to-day -day using like a microbial population is new to me when I got to grad school. So I had to learn uh, lab stuff. And so I actually study this using a chemostat, which is basically a giant test tube that has two hoses in it, uh, one that puts more media or like bacteria food into the test tube and one that pumps the mixture out at equal rates. So the volume is always the same. And so this replicates in a way a natural ecological system because a natural system will have an input of nutrients and an outflow of migration and, and death. So I use the chemostat to to show um, that our cooperating bacteria can exist on its own and that when we get cheaters involved, um, we get what we call a tragedy of the commons, uh, which is basically a population collapse because these free riders have this growth advantage and eventually there's too many of them to sustain this population. 
And so I've, I've been pairing this with uh, like a system, like a math system of equations. We're trying to show that the results are the same both theoretically and empirically. Or not the same, but similar at least. That's actually really, really cool because I, again, having been around people who do game theory, I hear a lot of discussion of it, but I haven't seen that many examples outside maybe anthropology circles of doing or economic circles of like doing actual lab experimentation to verify sort of the predicted behaviors. Yeah, that's one of the things that motivated our research questions is a lot of the game theory models that existed or like the ones that maybe John Nash is famous for are these agent-based models. So you think of just like individuals randomly bumping into other individuals, but maybe that works with humans, but it's hard to imagine bacteria as just individual bacteria bumping into other individual bacteria like i don't know that that really captures their behavior and so we're we're using more of a like mechanistic approach and considering their uh, biological processes and so that's that's sort of the the stamp that i'm trying to put on it what software or framework are you using for the modeling portion of that yeah so the models themselves are like a system of uh differential equations or specifically like odes which mm-hmm. if anyone has taken like an ODE class, you might have had to do the like solution in a bucket problems, which is kind of what I'm doing if the solution isn't salt water, but bacteria. And then to get like visual images, I, I use Python. I'm a fan of Python, but we've also done some... Yeah, Python high five. Yeah. <laughs> we've also done some like standard math proofs of some of the more theoretical concepts that maybe aren't completely testable in the chemostat. So I guess, what are you hoping to discover doing this? I mean, aside from seeing if the behavior of the actual community of bacteria kind of falls somewhat along the line of the predicted behavior based off of game theory, like is there a specific result you're hoping to find? Is there a hypothesis you're trying to prove or disprove, et cetera? Yeah. So the the main focus here is really trying to morph these empirical and theoretical approaches. What would be, I guess, in a perfect world, something that would be really cool is to stumble upon some sort of mechanism that sustains cooperation. That's something that folks that study it are particularly interested in. Um, so we hear a lot about like policing as a mechanism for sustaining cooperations. So that would be like the IRS to our taxes <laughs> as a public goods game, or you you know things like kin selection or concepts folks might be familiar with. So if I were to run an experiment and you know the tragedy didn't occur but something else happened, that would I would be very excited about that. Okay. But we shall. So basically, we shall see. Trying to figure out why out in the wild you don't see these bacteria populations growing and then crashing due to too many free riders just like all the time. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the the one I work with is a lung pathogen and it seems like certain mutations that would cause free riders to occur are very common, but we don't see, you know, these bacteria just killing themselves off and people not having it anymore. So it would be neat to to sort of get to the crux of that. Speaking more speculatively, could there be like a potential down the road medicinal aspect of that of like, okay, how can we get these bacteria to turn on each other if they're infecting someone? Yeah, definitely. It would be pretty cool, especially with bacteria having antibacterial resistance. If we could just have them kill each other instead of dealing with our medicine, that, that could be effective. Well, speaking of, so obviously when doing sort of modeling and experimentation, there is a huge amount of simplification that needs to be done to be able to actually like 
isolate effects and see what's actually happening. But is there ever any sense that, I guess, is there ever the sense, is is there the common criticism that perhaps the lab work that you're doing, and I assume people who are doing similar things to you, is inevitably too simplified to actually capture the complexities of what might be happening in a real world environment, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think yes and also no. I I think the modeling and experiments typically start out with the simplest case always, and then we, we build up on that. But bacteria, like working with the bacteria themselves, they still evolve and, and do their own thing. And so uh, if I could stop them from evolving, it would make my experiments uh, much simpler and probably easier for wrangling data, but they still just do what they want. Well, thinking of evolution within the controlled environment, are there ever any studies that compare sort of the course of evolution in the controlled environment versus the course of evolution in the real world environment? Like, are there ever just pulling something from random? Like, are there ever genetic studies looking at evolutionary changes over generations within the chemostat versus like genetic changes over generations from within lungs? That's a great question. I don't actually, I'm not aware of anything like that. I wonder if one of the harder parts about that is if you're studying the pair, the bacteria are going to evolve much faster than the humans. So it would take probably a long time to get all the the lung data. Hmm. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if someone is collecting that data. Well, just curious to see if there are any... I guess what I'm really trying to get at is whether there are, whether there's evidence that there is sort of a predictable path of evolution common across different environments, if that makes any sense. Like if we would expect to see the same changes within the chemostat as we would see in the real world environment of, for instance, somebody's lungs. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I I don't know the answer to that either. I I imagine that as genome sequencing is becoming more and more ubiquitous, that that data would probably be available soon, if, if not now. I don't know how easy it is to remove this bacteria from lungs. Like, I don't actually work, like, on humans. That's actually, I didn't consider that. Because you can't just cut open, because this is entomology poisoning my brain. You can't just cut a person open. Yeah, they tend to not like that. But you can cut a bug open. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There are very limited ethical restrictions placed on entomology, which is good in the sense that it makes things really easy for us, but bad in the sense that, I mean, the insects probably don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I have a similar experience working just purely with the bacteria. You know, a lot Mm. of my friends in my department are always having to get permission and permits and whatever, and I can just show up and kill a whole population if I need to. (laughs) It's just the tyrant of the lab, um, just killing off populations at whim. (laughs) I wonder also, is there ever the question of scalability? Like, you can see these effects in bacteria, but I imagine an easy, cynical perspective to have was would be bacteria are very small, And behaviorally, they're pretty simple. So what does bacteria have to do with, you know, bugs or even humans? Yeah, and I think you're getting at one of the sort of main differences here is that humans or some other uh, more intelligent organisms have the ability of choice. So I might choose to cooperate under some circumstances and not others, where with the bacteria, it's genetic. And so they're either always cooperating or 
never cooperating unless you know another mutation occurs that sends them back one way or the other. Uh, so that it does create a more simplified model, but since there's not a whole lot of work out there that really pairs these experiments with the math, starting simple feels feels right. Fair. It sounds a lot like the application of game theory to evolution and cooperation when applied to quote-unquote more complicated organisms such as humans is edging sort of dangerously close to evo-psych territory and i guess i would just ask do you have uh feelings about that (laughs) i always have feelings yeah i mean i i can see how it might sound that way i guess one of the the main features of like game theory is that it is rooted in it's like a, it is a strictly mathematical analysis so and it can be a little bit arbitrary in creating and defining payoff matrices which is sort of the route it took in the original days and so in that sense you'd say well if this person a and person b both cooperate what is like their benefit amount and like what is their cost amount but that's one of the reasons i'm what i'm doing is getting away from that model a little bit and instead going towards this mechanistic approach that says well what is their actual like growth rate and we create like a growth equation and like that's their fitness rather than just saying oh i think you benefit equal to five and like let's study that so you can actually quantify sort of these factors or you know penalties or rewards for cooperating or not a bit better than you can with traditional game theory it sounds like yeah exactly so for example game theory talks a lot about like a cost benefit ratio so it's what is the cost of this behavior versus what you get out of it and so i can take a look and like measure the growth of our cooperators on their own and our cheaters on their own and say well the benefit of cooperating is exactly like this much more growth you know i'm i'll be interested to see how you know being able to quantify these things turns out, especially how it changes over time. I know one of the people who graduated out of my lab, uh, Cole Mathis, was a big proponent of what he referred to jokingly as drunk game theory, which was the idea that the rules of whatever game you are constructing can change over time. The titular example being, well, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of buying all your friends a round of beer at the bar will seem different to you if you're one drink in or if you're several drinks in (laughs) and that you know in turn can change the whole structure of the game and the expected outcome yeah drinking at the bar changing our cost benefit ratios sounds like a fun project apparently there was a lot of field research involved yeah (laughs) uh remember bars yeah (laughs) yeah yeah So what are sort of next steps for you? Like, what are you, what is the timeline of what you are working on now? And sort of what are you hoping to do after it? Sure. I mean, um, ideally, I think the timeline is probably a couple, maybe two more years of Chemist Network, but it's hard to say. Uh, My last two experiments where I had both like a 10% cheater population in my Chemistat Uh, We got some new mutants that developed. And so now I'm sort of on this side quest of figuring out, are these new mutants cheaters or are they cooperators? Are they in the middle? Um, So it's it's hard to really know what my timeline is because bacteria like to mutate. Uh, But future goals, uh, I am sort of on a traditional track of staying in academia and it's probably a postdoc of some sort and then hopefully a job. 
teaching and researching somewhere. Yeah. With the uh, new state of X-Men movies coming out, do you get to relish saying mutants in everyday conversation on a regular basis? Yeah, I really enjoy it. I mean, the second X-Men movie was always my favorite, so I like to imagine them as some of the originals. Second X-Men movie is the best X-Men movie. Agreed. So, <laughs> the only good thing about X3 Last Stand is that they got Kelsey Grammer to be Hank, which was the right decision. Yeah, I would agree with that. I have not actually seen X3. It's You're not missing anything except Kelsey Grammer as Hank McCoy. Good, no, good to hear. I'm sure someone's made like a super clip of that on YouTube and I can just see the good parts and ignore everything else. Yeah, that's the way to go for sure. The only thing is that when they have them all suit up, they like don't give him a shirt. And it's like, what are we what are we trying to accomplish here? Because it's <laughs> not like Kelsey Grammer covered in blue hair is prime beefcake material. Maybe it depends on the audience. You know, you're not wrong. But if there is anybody for whom Kelsey Grammer dressed as blue hair, Hank McCoy is beefcake material. It's me, and it didn't work on me, so I can't imagine that it would have for anybody else. It's <laughs> fair. I think this sounds really, really cool, what you're doing, Brian, and I hope to see what you come up with and that we can actually... Having done my share of microbial modeling, although it was mostly focused on nutrient and energy flows, the fact that you're actually going out there and getting quantified hard numbers for some of these factors or whatever is really nice because a lot of times when I was doing it for my master's thesis, I would be just like, well, I'm going to use this number because it doesn't cause my model to crash. So we're going to assume it's this number. <laughs> and it would be nice to have like something actually really grounded in reality to pump, you know, pop in there. Yeah, it's nice for me to be grounded in reality in just one facet of my life. <laughs> what kind of research do you want to do after you do this research? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I... I really enjoy studying cooperation, um, and I also really enjoy math. So anything that intersects that is going to be a place that I enjoy. Maybe I'll end up studying a higher organism, or maybe I'll stay in theory. I don't really have a strong, strong preference. If you did end up working on a higher organism, would your methodologies have to change to account for the more complicated ability to make choices of basically any organism that can actually intentionally disperse. Yeah, definitely. And I think that could be done modeling wise. It wouldn't be too challenging to show that. You'd just have another state variable or like category that the populations would sort of bounce between the two. Um, so you could like switch from cheater to not cheater. Uh, so the real problem is quantifying the behavior into like two distinct categories or can you quantify it into three distinct categories or four or is it you know the more behaviors the more complicated the system will be um, but an animal that's well studied that has some good like historical data i think it would be pretty reasonable to sort that out i mean the other thing that is on my mind is that i most commonly hear about the concept of tragedy of the commons when it comes from people who hate communism who try to use it as a reason uh, communism is impossible. But as you said, you normally, when you end up having a certain majority of cheaters, that leads to this population collapse because everyone is taking advantage of the commons, and the, but not contributing to it. 
So, I mean, what I really want to ask is why will communism succeed? But what I'm actually going to ask is, the question is really, we don't have a mechanism for how cooperation persists, right? There's been several that have been suggested. And so what like what would be really neat is finding like a new one. But the idea of like, so I mentioned policing earlier, um, which is really just like a, a form of like punishing cheaters. Um, but you can take think of the flip side of like you can punish bad behavior, you can reward, extra reward good behavior. There's also just the idea of changing your behavior based on who you're interacting with. So you might cooperate more with friends and colleagues than you do strangers. Are there ever any instances where it looks like the population is leading towards this tragedy of the commons population collapse, but then it ends up bouncing back towards cooperation? Like, are there instances where cheaters are sort of dominating the population, but then a cooperative majority can become reinstated? So I haven't discovered this with my bacteria yet, but that certainly is something that happens in in the world. Uh, so one of my favorite examples might be the Iceland cod wars. My favorite war, nobody died, but there was a lot of fishing for cod around the borders of Iceland and boats would come over from like the UK or Europe and basically fish their, their region. And so they just started driving their boats head on into non-Icelandic boats that were fishing there to drive them away. So that would be a form of uh, a form of policing. And it ended up getting change in how much of waters are considered national territory. So it expanded that property. Basically, every country was for it that wasn't the European countries trying to steal their cod. Is there anything that you wish people would ask you about that's like really cool or really interesting that you never get the opportunity to talk about? If there is, please refer to talk about it now. Ooh, that's a great question. You know, actually, I did go to culinary school before I got into science. Well, why did you leave um, the culinary world? Yeah, I left mostly because I wanted to work better hours for not terrible pay. And so you chose to become a graduate student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good decision there, buddy. Know, Good decision. How much work it is. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of opportunities for growth. So many academic jobs on the market. Yeah. Old uh, habits die hard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, in a weird way, culinary school and like wet lab biology have a lot of similar skills. Yeah, I would agree. I often feel like I'm cooking. I just don't get to eat what I make anymore. Yeah, don't eat. It's forbidden snacks. Have you been on the... Um, I'm going to cut this out because this is just an unrelated tangent. But there was a subreddit called Forbidden Snacks. And it's like things that are not food that look like food. <laughs> so this is where Tide Pods got their glory days. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like your situation is like a weird... Like, not the exact genre of forbidden snacks, but sort of a, a spiritual cousin. Feels like cooking, but it doesn't produce food rather than looking like food, but don't eat it. Right, yeah. Uh, I would agree with that. I always, you know, what's the difference between a protocol and a recipe? You know, this is why I'm glad I do all theoretical work. You never have to worry about this conundrum. <laughs> Do you have like a favorite science fiction area or are you more of a fantasy guy? Yeah, 
Um, I mean, like, the books I read are probably mostly fantasy or, like, true crime books because who wants to sleep at night? <laughs> Not me. Yeah, who needs it? <laughs> well, I used to really like post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction. And nowadays it's like, I can't. I can't. Yeah, like, I, I get too enough. Yeah, it's like there are enough bummers going around. I don't need, like, I don't need a harrowing story about the effects of climate change because I'm living the harrowing story about the effects of climate change. Right. Yeah. No, I, I feel that every like post-apocalyptic media thing that's come my way lately, I'm just like, well, I'm already in the beginning of one. Yeah. The only thing I have to say is that consuming that media has actually it's given me unrealistic expectations for how long it would take because i thought oh mm. it's the apocalypse you know the world will be over in a matter of weeks but i mean man this is taking forever can we just cut to the chase already <laughs> well this is an interest this may or may not be interesting but one thing i think about constantly is what it would be like to be trans in like a, a post-apocalyptic novel post-apocalypse mostly because like where would you get hormones you know that's a good question. I know estradiol can be synthesized by um, from soybeans, apparently. I don't know the chemical well, stuff. Well, so that's that. that taken care of. Yeah, so I'm good. I don't I'm know about actually... y'all. <laughs> I don't actually know what testosterone is even synthesized from. Yeah, I don't either. Um, I know that there are like certain foods that might increase your levels slightly. So maybe you just have a 90% like garlic diet. See, this is what's really tragic <laughs> is that I love Fabaceae, which is, you know, the, the family that soy comes from, but also like beans in general. But that's the other thing is that there's the, you know, the like soy boy right wing nonsense, but there's actually no robust evidence that oh, eating large no. amounts of soy meaningfully increases your estrogen. Phytoestrogens like are super weakly bonding to estrogen receptors they essentially have yeah. no real pharmacokinetic effect on the body trust me i've researched this yeah <laughs> yeah for years i denied myself soy out of the thought that well maybe and it's it's just wasted years of my life not eating like tofu yeah I'd I definitely did the same thing, you know, the early transition days when like every ounce of hormone seems to matter the most. Yeah. Like getting then getting back to being trans in science. Have you do you think that being trans has really affected your experience of science? In some ways. I mean, I think the way I present myself, I probably get read as like a gay cis man a lot. Mm. So I can't really talk about sport in a convincing way. <laughs> um, Who among us can? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. about to say you're in the you're in the right place here. <laughs> yeah, see, it's always the like default conversation piece, and I think that's the thing that like lets the dog out of the bag, so to speak, or however that goes. And so I, I don't really try to talk to straight guys that much. Yeah, I generally try to avoid them as well. <laughs> I mean, um, no offense to the straight guys that I like, um, like my dad. But to get at your question, I, I think there's always like a, a weird extra layer of coming outness. Um, and so it's like maybe I get read as gay, but then if I have like a currently female presenting partner, then uh, folks tend to ask strange and inappropriate questions. Or 
you know, if I need a letter of recommendation and it's for like a LGBT specific group, then that can feel a little awkward. Are you pretty stealth in the academic environment or are you like out to people? Are you out to certain people and not other people? Yeah, I'm not like intentionally not out to anyone, but uh, I don't like tie a trans flag around my neck to the lab so if it comes up or if i like and like sometimes it does come up especially academics really are shooting for this like diversity and inclusion trainings and so i like to sit in on those and see what people have to say and and so it'll come up sometimes i don't stop it from coming up but i think there's probably a good mix of people that don't know still well tessa i know that you're like very out yeah i mean it varies um I've definitely been to conferences where I'm pretty sure, like, almost there, no one knew. But I'm in a very small field, and I was in it even before I transitioned. So, I mean, it, it, it's not exactly concealed. Have you gotten, have you gotten the, like, classic, oh, have you read this paper that, like, your brother published? I have not. I did have somebody later on realize that, oh, my God, you were the person who presented this talk about, you know, glacial microbial ecosystems, you know, way back in 2012 or whatever. And I just put it together because I made an offhand comment about doing that. And up until that moment, that person had not made that connection that, you know, pre-transition me and now me were the same person. But that's Mm. about as close as I've gotten. I haven't gotten the, uh, oh yeah, you should check out this thing that your brother wrote yet. Yet. Well, I'll keep make a little bingo card of like, all the things that could happen and then mark them off when they do. And then it'll be the most boring game of bingo ever. Cause it'll probably <laughs> take 20 years, but you yeah. get a prize, but you get a prize. You have to give it to yourself because nobody else is playing bingo with you. But Brian, what you're working on sounds really, really cool. And I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Yeah. Thank you. Brian, do you have any final thoughts? No, cats are great. Cats Science are great. is good. Science is pretty good. Not as good as cats, but what could be? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, well, that's as good of an ending thought as I think anybody is ever going to get uh, with yeah. anything they do in their entire lives. So I will say, Brian, if people want to find you online, where should they look? Yeah, so my Twitter is at Abstract Brian, or um, you can find me at the website, brianklin.com. So if people want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. And Tessa? I'm on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. And the podcast is on Twitter at A-S-A-B pod or at our website, A-S-A-B podcast.com. Thank you for listening. Catch you on the flip side.